Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Well, it sounds like Hamilton's newest encampment is going to be cleared soon. Ontario's new private public health care model, will it work? TV game shows are still going strong 80 years later. And can you cheer for an arch rival in the playoffs? The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We have a serious issue, though, in this community, and that is uh, another encampment in our community. And for some, it's hitting a, a little closer to home than ever before. This one is right behind Hamilton City Hall. There are more than two dozen people in this encampment, and we're all waiting to see what happens next. And it sounds like we are pretty close to a resolution. We have solutions, we have ideas, we have plans for building housing, uh, but uh, until there's funding to make that happen, uh, it it's just presents itself as a problem. That is uh, Medora Upol, the CEO of the YWCA Hamilton, who was a guest on GMH earlier this morning. And uh, Monica Sorello is our guest now on GMH, the Director of Bylaw and Licensing Services with the City of Hamilton. Monica, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. We heard earlier this morning from Medora that uh, this encampment is set to be cleared tomorrow. Can you confirm that? I, I can certainly confirm that municipal law enforcement has issued notices of voluntary compliance, and those were effective immediately when they were issued last week. So can you tell us when the encampment will be cleared? What's the game plan? R- right now, we are we're continuing with our housing-focused street approach, meaning that we are having housing staff as well as uh, social navigator Hamilton Police attending the site in order to attain voluntary compliance of those that are behind City Hall. So how successful is that? You know what, to date, we, we have certainly increased our efforts. Uh, we are seeing compliance by some folks that are taking us up on shelter options that are available, but we're going to continue our efforts to obtain voluntary compliance, and, and we're going to continue down that path. So how many people are still in the encampment? Um, about 35. Okay, so is, uh, that was a, a bigger number than previous, because I think there was 31 voluntary compliance notices. So how many have been issued in total? We've issued 31 voluntary compliance notices, and those go to the, the to the tents, not to the individuals. So there are 35 individuals that are actually on the site. Um, and, and, and since March, that number has increased, which is why we took the, the necessary next step to issue those voluntary compliances, because we had been going um, about four to five times per week uh, since the beginning of March, and we started to see an increase in intent and an increase in activity. So we, we, we felt that the next step was the, the enforcement, which was the voluntary compliance notice. So what happens after that if these individuals just say, listen, I'm not, I'm not leaving? You know what, that, that is a great question, and we are taking that day by day. We, we truly hope that the individuals will be taking the real-time information that we're providing them when that comes to referrals to health care or shelter space when that's available. Uh, we, again, have everyone all hands on deck with support from the city and, and social navigator go, going there to provide all services that are available in real time. We have seen in the past, not only in Hamilton, but other communities as well, whether it's bylaw officers or police officers clearing out these encampments, taking down the tents. Is that the last ditch uh, attempt at clearing it out? You know what, that is certainly an event that, that I think everyone wants to avoid seeing. Um, again, it's a day-by-day approach with all hands on deck with staff to determine what is the right solution at the right time. So where are these people going to be sent when it is eventually dispersed? So, such, such a great question. Again, we, we do have our housing outreach staff, and what they're doing is they're providing real-time shelter options 
Um, I do know that we do have some shelter capacity available for individuals that would like to take the take the city up on that offer. There has been a concern with uh, open fires uh, at this encampment site. I know Hamilton Fire Department has been at the site numerous times. What is the situation right now in, in terms of these open fire situations? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Fire EMS at HPS have all seen an increase in calls to this to this area. Um, you're, you're right. When it comes to fire, they've attended 21 times for open fires, removing propane tanks. Um, and, and that was one of the main reasons why we're seeing an increase in enforcement saying, you know what, there are, there are health and safety concerns for the community, for members that are residing in the encampment, for city staff. These are concerns that we take very seriously and what we want to ensure that we're addressing. As you mentioned, there's rising enforcement. Is there rising danger for those in this encampment? That, that's something I, I, would, I would recommend the, the police comment on. Monica, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Best of luck in uh, handling this situation. It's not an easy one, as you know. Thank you so much for having me. Monica Sorello is the Director of Bylaw and Licensing Services with the City of Hamilton. I think we can all agree that this is not the situation that we want to see, not for our city, not for these individuals, most importantly, because there is, there has to be a better option. What there isn't right now is uh, really an available option. Medora Upel, the CEO of the Hamilton uh, YWCA, said, listen, there's there's no shelter spaces for these individuals. We need more of that. We need more affordable housing. Heck, where are these tiny shelters that I'm a big fan of and I think they can play a big part in this? The question is, where do you put them? People don't want them in their neighborhood. There's not one clear-cut answer to resolve this issue. Sadly, Sadly, and it's the individuals who are in this encampment who have nowhere to go are stuck in the middle and get are, they're getting tugged here, there, and everywhere and being moved to places where, well, in their mind, they don't want to be. Keep tabs on this story in our newscast throughout the day. And, of course, tomorrow, if it does indeed happen uh, today or tomorrow or, or the next day, we'll be on it and you'll hear the latest greatest here on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The latest encampment in Hamilton. And it's not fantastic because we need to get these individuals in a much more secure housing. So here's the latest. Hamilton has issued uh, 31 voluntary compliance notices to people who are living in an encampment behind City Hall near Whitehorn House. It's a complex matter in the sense we want to make sure that shelter options are available uh, operationally. Uh, we take things into consideration as well. Timelines are not always provided just because we might be achieving voluntary compliance, in which case then an escalated enforcement or, or next steps may not need to be taken. That is Monica Sorello, the city's director of bylaw services. She's going to join us at 820 this morning to talk about this issue. And, and the question is... You know, what What happens now? Medora Upal is the CEO of the YWCA Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Medora, good morning. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Rick? I, I'm good. What is the latest behind City Hall? Is it status quo? It is status quo right now, although last night uh, we've been told that people will be moved from the encampment on Thursday. I haven't verified that with city staff, um, but that's the latest information we have. Do you know where they're going to be moved to? Well, I don't because uh, as far as we know, there hasn't been any um, openings in shelters. Uh, we do know that there is a new women's program, a housing program through uh, Good Shepherd that's opened as of yesterday. We're expecting to move people in there and that will start to uh, create some space and movement for women in the system. But uh, for the men, I'm not sure where they would uh, end up. Do you know if anyone has left the encampment already? Uh, not that I can see. There's no visible indication of the encampment's clearing. 
Uh, how is the YWCA Hamilton helping in this situation? Well, people come overnight into our space when we open up Carol Ann's place at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, we start seeing people come over from uh, the uh, encampments. We also have our safe use program. And so women and gender diverse people can come in and use drugs uh, safely uh, overnight. So our numbers are increasing. Uh, we've seen uh, a rise from an average of 30 a day to up to 60. Uh, and that's uh, comparable to our partner uh, drop-ins um, where at Willow's Place during the daytime, their numbers are going up to 60 and 80. And uh, I'm sure you've seen those numbers escalate uh, over the last few weeks, months, years. They have, yeah. They've really climbed. We've seen over 700 individuals come in since the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020. And the concerning factor is that it's an escalation of numbers um, over the years. So we go from an average of, you know, 20 to 30 to 40, and now we're, you know, looking at 50 to 60. Medora Upal is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Medora is the CEO of the YWCA Hamilton. We're talking about the city's latest encampment. It's right behind Hamilton City Hall near Whitehorn Historic House. Uh, you mentioned no shelter spaces. I is there always an option for someone who is outside and doesn't have uh, access to shelter? Uh, in the women's system, there there are very few options. We, as I said, we opened Carol Ann's place overnight. We have 22 beds to offer in there. They fill up really quickly. Um, sometimes women come in and out, so other people have an opportunity to come in for the night to sleep. But beyond that, uh, all these shelters are full. And we're seeing women who are fleeing violent situations now coming into our drop-ins uh, seeking refuge because the uh, shelters are awful. So this is really having a big impact on the YWCA. It is. Yeah, it's a significant problem. Uh, we have solutions. We have ideas. We have plans for building housing. Uh, but uh, until there's funding to make that happen, uh, it it's just presents itself as a problem. So what's going on with the funding aspect? Is this a provincial government roadblock that you're finding? Uh, right now, it's a, a roadblock at all levels of government. Uh, the housing, the funding for housing uh, isn't really there. It's very expensive to build housing now. Affordable housing is uh, a, a risky and expensive initiative. Uh, so we don't have any private investment. So the challenge is we rely 100% on government contributions. And if the government isn't stepping up, we can't build. We've heard the in particular the provincial government say, "Listen, we got to build you know 1.5 million homes over the next decade, and you know opening up the greenbelt lands to do so." But it takes time, and obviously it takes money to build these homes. Are there any short-term solutions that we should be doing to correct and and eliminate the need for these encampments? Well, I think continuing to work with people in the encampments day in, day out through offering services, understanding what needs they have and looking for solutions that really fit for them. I think one of the problems uh, is when we disperse people from the encampments, and I've had this experience you know, prior to the pandemic, trying to locate individuals, offering them services and help, collaborating amongst uh, different partners to, to try to figure out a wraparound approach to help people is really hard if you can't find them. And when you do find them, they're in distress and crisis trying to figure out where they're going to go next. Um, it's, it's really hard to stabilize and get individuals the help they need. 
there's a massive part of this whole situation that's the mental health aspect, and some individuals need that to be addressed. Are there enough supports in this city to help that? I think we have a lot of great agencies, uh, uh, staff working in mental health who could provide the help. Uh, the reality is that there isn't enough services. We know that there's wait lists and it's difficult to access mental health services immediately. Uh, but we've got the right people and the right organizations trying to do the work. Uh, but it, it's, it's a very challenging endeavor right now. And I would suggest that there is a funding challenge uh, with mental health as well. So come Thursday, when this encampment is uh, dispersed, however that's going to be executed, uh, is the YWCA going to be front and center to invite some of these individuals inside? What kind of programs can you offer them? Yeah, we're really limited. We close at one o'clock and uh, we can invite people in up till then, but we are at maximum capacity before the encampments being dispersed. So uh, we'll do what we can to help people. We are providing people um, with gift cards to Tim Hortons, places where they can go and uh, spend some time, get some food and won't be disrupted and asked to leave. Uh, so that's one of the ways we're offering assistance as well as we have food, water, um, and other things people might need to assist them in in their travels. Good reminder, too, to our listeners who uh, have the, the means to do so. This is a great opportunity for someone in the community or, or many in the community to give to the YWCA to help you guys offer and continue these programs to people in need. Uh, Medora, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, good luck tomorrow. Thank you, Rick. That's Medora Upol, the CEO of the YWCA Hamilton. And uh, as you heard, tomorrow seems to be the day where these uh, 31 individuals are going to be dispersed from this encampment behind City Hall. We'll certainly bring you the latest, greatest on this story. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is about getting rid of the backlog, Order. making sure we help people get well again. Every surgical and diagnostic center must have a process for receiving and responding to patient complaints. Patients cannot be denied access to treatment if they don't purchase uninsured services. So that is the message from the Ontario government. As you can imagine, not everyone is a fan of this public-private mix. David Jacobs is the president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. David, good morning. How are you? Hey, how are you? Good. Where do you stand on this new health care model that we have in this province? I'm, I'm very... Your audio keeps fading in, um, so I'm having trouble hearing the question. Could you just... You're, you're also cutting in and out as well. Let's uh, move you over to the phone, David. I think you're on Zoom right now. Let's move David to the phone, and we'll give our listening audience a little time to breathe. But it's also the focus of our daily poll question of the day today as well, whether or not you think this new healthcare model is going to eventually, not right now, but eventually create a two-tier healthcare system in Ontario. Yes, it's inevitable. Or no, you don't think it's going to happen. Vote now on Twitter at AM900CHML or send me a text at 905-645-3221. Email is rick at 900CHML.com. And uh, we're also going to take your calls, your texts, your social media feeds, the whole kit and caboodle in uh, in about 11 minutes' time. We have David on the phone this time. David, uh, I just started by asking you, where do you sit uh, for and against this public-private health care mix? Well, I'm very much in favor of it. Um, the system is already ruled out in Ontario in some areas. Uh, so if you look at um, 
the Shouldice Clinic, that's uh, a good example of what uh, is being rolled out. And we already have some existing CT and MRI clinics uh, that function under this system, and they've been functioning uh, for well over a decade. And all, all of these add capacity to the system. What kind of procedures or surgeries would your fields partake in? And are you expecting to see a rush of individuals come through the door? Well, I'm a radiologist, and what we're going to be doing uh, in radiology is we're going to be expanding services. So right now, uh, wait lists can, uh, we're already booking into next year for elective MRI scanners in some sites. Um, And what this will do is it will allow us to service the patients much much more quickly, um, and it will allow us to also perform procedures in hospitals uh, that we haven't been able to do up until now by uh, taking some of the pressure off of the hospital units. So not only will it increase efficiency for patients who are outpatients, but it's also going to increase throughput uh, in the hospital as well. Uh, radiology will be much less of a bottleneck uh, for patient care. What is the wait list like right now? Well, like I said, uh, for some hospitals, it's reasonable. Uh, Those are more of the peripheral hospitals. But when you're looking in the GTA, um, for elective outpatient procedures, you can be looking at well into next year, uh, which is ridiculous. I mean, if you've got uh, a knee that you can't walk on, uh, that's considered elective. Uh, so you're waiting for your MRI for six months or more. It's just not acceptable, and this will address that. David Jacobs is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. David is the president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists, and we're talking about this new private-slash-public health care model that is now in place in Ontario. There's there's two fears. Number one, the two-tier health care system that could eventually come down the line, and there's also a fear of upselling or getting upselling sold on certain items. Let's tackle that latter one, the upselling. Uh, Is this a a real fear or is it opposition political parties saying, uh, you know, this is the doom and gloom and we can't have this? Oh, it, it's nonsense. So the, uh, for radiology, for an MRI, for a CT scan, I, I'm really not quite sure how you could be upsold on anything. It's, it's, it is what it is. Uh, and it's all covered by OHIP. So these are privately run facilities, but they're publicly funded. Now, in terms of something like cataract surgery, uh, is there an upsell? No. There's an opportunity to get a better quality lens Uh, in these clinics, exactly the same as it would be in the hospital. Uh, Your surgeon is obliged to offer you the publicly funded lens that you would get for cataract surgery, but they're also obliged to say you could have uh, better vision with this lens or that lens, but it's not covered by OHIP. That's what happens in the hospitals today. So if you want to call that upselling, I think that's really not what it is. Uh, It's offering the patients options. Um, For the rest of the surgeries that they're offering, such as hip surgeries or knee scopes or whatnot, I I really don't see the opportunity for uh, upselling as as they're calling it. In regards to the two-tier fear, uh, and and the province from their part has said, listen, you can use your OHIP card, you're not going to be charged extra for any of this stuff. Down the line, are we in danger of eventually getting to a two-tier system? 
No, I don't think so. Um, it, it's also a little frustrating to, to watch this. When you look at the Canadian healthcare system, and you look at how we compare to uh, other developed countries, we're dead last on most metrics. Um, and when you look at Netherlands uh, or you look at Sweden, who are at the top of the class, those two systems have exactly what we're doing, which is a publicly funded, privately delivered system. So uh, whether it be in the, the Netherlands or Sweden, if you go into these uh, publicly funded, privately run clinics, you use your their, the healthcare system dollars. You don't dig into your pocket for the care. And what that does is it's actually quite interesting. So not only does it expand capacity, but it creates something that we almost completely lack in Canada, and that is competition. So what they found is with these publicly funded, privately run clinics, they're able to force the publicly run hospitals to compete for patients because the money, uh, the public money, follows the patients. So now you're in a situation where not only are you bringing in more capacity, but you're also forcing innovation. Uh, and the, 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 the results have been tremendous for the Netherlands. They were looking at a very similar situation as Canada in terms of wait lists um, and outcomes. Now they're top of the class. Uh, we've only got about 30 seconds. Is that competition, could it lead to people from the public system going to the private system, thus making our public system a little weaker? Mm. Certainly not. What you're going to look at in the short term is there will be some uh, some movement, but ultimately this creates capacity. What you need to deal with capacity is more people in the system in terms of providing the service, more nurses, more doctors, more support staff. And that's really what it, the end result, once this stabilizes, will be more more availability of services to the patients. David, great breakdown. Thank you for joining us here on uh, Good Morning Hamilton. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much. David Jacobs is the president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Roundtable time with Paul and Shona. Good morning. How are you? Morning. Uh, awesome. We're well, we're well. Excellent. Earlier this morning, I chatted with Bill Briou, a friend of the show who's a... Uh, a journalist, a, a TV critic, an author, a blogger, a podcaster, got a great website at briu.tv. And we were talking about the uh, premiere episode tonight of a four-part documentary series called The Game Show Show. And it shows that we love game shows, and we have since they started like 80 years ago. So I wanted to ask you, and Paul, we'll start with you on this one. What game show would you be fantastic on, and which game show would you just be an absolute hot mess well, I'll, tell, I'll start with the hot mess. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know the one that you have to answer with a question? <laughs> I screw that up every time, okay. that part. And most of the time, I, I look at the questions and think, I don't even know what the question means, let alone the answer. <laughs> yeah. Or the answer, you know, the other way around. Yes. Yeah, so I would not do well on that one. Okay. Um, the ones that I would do the best on, you know, where you dress up like a fool and then get to point at boxes and say, I'll take the big box <laughs> versus the little let's box. Make a deal. <laughs> that, let's yes. make a deal. Let's make a deal. I can do some Halloween costumes like you can't believe. <laughs> and so I'd be great at that because I need sheer luck. Because I can tell you, when the lights come on <laughs> and the cameras start rolling. <laughs> You're deer in the headlights. I'm a deer in the headlights. <laughs> and I would not be able to. 
answer anything that of anything of intelligence. Yeah, it it's way. amazing. It's like you never learned anything in your life about anything. Yes, I, exactly. I know that's exactly right. I mean, that's when you when you watch. When you watch Jeopardy, sometimes you think, oh, what an idiot. And then you think, well, I, <laughs> number one, I couldn't have answered half the things that person couldn't did even get answer. on the show. And sometimes they just answer things in a ridiculous fashion because <laughs> they're on TV with the headlights, yeah. with the lights going. Yeah. I, I agree with you on the Jeopardy thing. And my daughter and I watch Jeopardy virtually every night. And she, she is, I will reluctantly say, much better than I, <laughs> more often than not on these shows. And... I, I just look at someone like Amy Schneider, who was one of the all-time best players, and it took her 10 years to get on the show. Yeah. If I were ever on that show, I would be just a tire fire. It yeah. would not go well. I've stopped <laughs> watching it because I just, I'm embarrassed for myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always, I always, you know, if I get the final Jeopardy right, it's like a redemption, or at least I got that one. Like, that should be the hardest question. More often than not, it's not. Yeah. Uh, the game show I think I would do well at would be The Price is Right. Because, you know, it seems easy. I can spin a wheel. I can throw a Plinko chip down the Plinko board. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of skill or mental capacity. That so is for you're, sure. you're going on the lack of skill one as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I, I want you to play the yodeler one. Oh, but I you love have that to game. do the yodeler. You have to do the yodeler. <laughs> the one that's, the th- that screws me up on the prices, right, is it's American prices. Oh, I know. Yeah, and that's some the difficult. Some of the stuff you think, well. That's not $10. That's $46. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Shout yeah. out the best game show you would be uh, good at and the one eh, not so much. Okay. I've got a question, a qualifier here. Okay. Are we talking traditional in-studio game shows with a host like Gene Rayburn? Right. Or are we talking about competition shows? I was thinking game shows like TV trivia shows. I know where you're going, like Survivor or Amazing Race. Uh, well, I just finished watching one called The Traders, okay. which is hosted by Alan Cumming. Uh-huh. And it's 22 people that are sent to a remote castle in the highlands of Scotland. Ooh. And of the 22, three are chosen to be traitors, but you can't reveal that. It's up to the other people called the faithful uh-huh. to figure out who the traitors are, and you are eventually vying for about a quarter of a million dollars in prize. So money. this is a little bit of a twist or a spin on The Mole, which is very similar. Very similar. Okay. So yeah. that, okay, you're, you're going to pick that show to be yeah. really I'd good I'd be good, at? especially if I were one of the traitors. I was going to say, you'd be one of the traitors? Oh, you've got it. <laughs> okay, which game show would you just suck at? Pictionary. And I'll tell you why. Is that a game show? It, well, yeah, sadly it is. Yeah, um, Wait, do you watch all the game shows that no one's heard of? I'm <laughs> <laughs> I think I've seen this one, actually. I think I've seen this one. Jerry O'Connell hosts. And uh, I'm terrible at drawing, for starters. And I really wouldn't try because their prizes really stink. <laughs> okay. So you would just forget about it. Yeah, it's like, I'm not even trying. It's not worth my time. Remember the thing okay. those Canadian game shows back in the day when <laughs> you had to play for a week, and if you won the week, you'd get a dryer. Or, or <laughs> the the best one I ever heard was uh, a year supply of underwear. A year supply yeah, of there underwear. You go. How much Woo-hoo. underwear does one need? Well, well that varies, my <laughs> friend. A year supply would last the average adult male ten years. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, and really, his wife would be starting at year number two, going, "Honey, <laughs> yeah. you got to change that." You're so right. All right, Tiger Woods. In some people's minds, so right. In others, so very wrong. Have you heard how he dumped his latest love interest? Oh, no. Yes, I do, but you tell tell the story. Yeah, so he and his longtime girlfriend have split up. Her name is Erica Herman, and she's now suing him for $30 million because they apparently had 
an agreement that she would stay in one of his homes for 10 years, and he obviously reneged on that after she did not sign a non-disclosure agreement after they began a sexual relationship. So her lawyer is saying, well, you can't force her to do so because you're already in this relationship. This is against employment law. And so the relationship deteriorated, it broke up, and he basically convinced her that, hey, we're going on a trip. Show up at the airport, and we're going to go to whatever the destination is. She shows up and then gets a call from his trust to say, uh, you know what, uh, not only are you not going on the trip, but uh, you're now, you've now been dumped. Oh, uh, so, uh, you know, some people say it was savage. I'm saying not so much. Horrible way to dump a person. Like, do it face-to-face. Come on, Tiger. <sighs> I well, understand millions of dollars on the line, but man, oh man. Here's my advice to the world's greatest, the people wanting to be associated in a dating fashion with the world's greatest golfer of all time, perhaps. <laughs> yes. He has proven time and time again that relationships are not his strength. He is a horrible person when it comes to relationships. And if you get into a relationship with one of him, guess what? You will be his next victim. So my pity for this person who's now wanting millions from this man is zero. That's one way to put it. I still think he should pay. <laughs> oh, I'm not saying he shouldn't pay. No, I know. I'm just saying she's she's an idiot. Yeah, like, she, what she was she going into when she was going with Tiger Woods? Yeah. That he is the quintessence of the bad boyfriend. <laughs> Absolutely. The pinnacle. I did have a story about a night manager at a hotel in Tennessee. I'll save it for tomorrow. But it is an absolutely <laughs> absurd story. If, if we bring you in food, can we get you to not No, because you'll want to use a barf bag after <laughs> oh, you hear no. this. Yes. We'll do it tomorrow on, okay. on the round table. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. TV game shows have existed since the 1940s, and they've become really a part of our lives ever since. But the question is, what makes these quiz shows so compelling? Well, it turns out there's a science to it, and it is the focus of a four-part docu-series called The Game Show Show that premieres tonight on ABC. Bill Brio is here to talk about it. Bill is an award-winning journalist, television critic, and author, and joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Bill, good morning. How are you? I'm great. Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. You have a, a podcast on your website, Brio.tv, and you spoke with the people behind this docu-series. What did you learn? Well, yeah, as you pointed out, there is sort of a, the secret draw, the secret magic uh, of these shows. And the, their theory is it it's all boils down to what they call the American dream. You know, just winning all kinds of stuff for doing almost nothing. <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, that's who doesn't want to do that. So and, and people like to watch that happen. You also asked the show creators about... Uh, the phenomenon that is Canadian hosts, whether it's Monty Hall or Alex Trebek or Howie Mandel. And what did you find in terms of why Canadians are so suited for this kind of role? Yeah, Norm Perry as well, you know, did uh, shows on both sides of the border. I think, uh, well, you know, the, the, one of the producers, John uh, Ehrler, uh, was very, uh, you know, he, he basically said that Canadians are known for being just really nice and people like to watch nice people hosting game shows. Um, I don't think that's quite it. But, you know, the, you look at guys like Monty Hall, came from Winnipeg. They just seem to have a, a drive to make something like that happen. They tested it there locally before they went national. They just knew what they were doing. You know, they were very good at it. Howie Mandel is quite a voice on this, the game show show special tonight. 
Um, and the producers told me they used almost every word he said. He was just, it even got him to throw to commercials. Like he was just very effective as a presenter and speaker. So that's a big part of it. We're talking about game shows with Bill Brio, award-winning journalist, TV critic, and author. You can check out uh, his article and the podcast on his website, brio.tv. That's B-R-I-O-U-X.tv. And in that post that you have on your website, you also mentioned that your mom was on a game show back in the day. Oh, that's right, Rick. Way, way back. One of my earliest memories, uh, the, the CFTO studio was brand new out in Agent Court. I remember we went out there and there was a game show called To Tell the Truth. Some listeners might remember uh, they've tried to bring it back, you know, a couple of times. Basically, they had contestants who were posing as experts and they had to the panel had to pick the one they thought was the real expert. My mom was supposed to be a nutritionist, and so I was a little kid in the audience, and I watched her do the Canadian version, and she lied and got some money, and I thought, well, there's a lesson from my mom. Lie and get money. <laughs> it's a great story as we approach Mother's Day. How much How much did she win? Back then, you know, probably $25, which would have been like a week's salary. You know, this yeah. is way back, so... Uh, you know, but uh, she just was into it. A lot of people just wanted to get on TV uh, back then. And, you know, and, and there was a lot of local shows. One of my favorites, of course, game shows of all time, shot right in Hamilton, Party Game, you know, throughout the 70s. That was must-see TV for me and uh, great, great panelists, Dinah Christie, Jack Duffy, uh, and uh, Billy Van. You know, that was a lot of fun to watch them do charades. Got about 90 seconds, and you also reveal that you, too, have been on a game show. Yes, yeah, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. There, <laughs> there was a couple I snuck on. One was called Bumper Stumpers, yep. and uh, you had to sort of guess what the uh, – you, you saw a scrambled license plate, and you had to figure out what it said. People do this driving on the highway now, right? Probably people were, were, who are listening – uh, you always trying to figure out what those personalized plates were. That was the whole basis of the game. And, uh, uh, you know, it was some fun, but uh, didn't win a darn thing. Oh, so your mom has bragging rights in the household. She always has bragging rights <laughs> in the household. That's true. Bill, thanks for walking down memory lane with us. And uh, I'm excited to see this show. Should be a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us. It is a great show, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Bill Brio, award-winning journalist, a television critic, and author. Check out the website, brio.tv, B-R-I-O-U-X.tv. It's a great website and great info on that site. And this game show show docuseries uh, premieres tonight on ABC. It's a four-parter each and every Wednesday in the month of May, or the, the rest of May. Uh, we'll uh, showcase this docuseries. Kind of fun. You're listening. Listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. When you are a fan of a certain team uh, from here in Canada, whether it's Toronto or Edmonton in this case, Winnipeg, they also made the playoffs as well, and, and your team gets knocked out of the playoffs, do you find yourself then shifting your allegiance just temporarily to the last remaining Canadian NHL team as they try to end Canada's long, now 30-year, long Stanley Cup drought. For instance, if the Leafs get bounced tonight, will Leafs fans say, all right, let's go Oilers? Or will they say, ah, the heck with the playoffs, I'm not paying attention anymore? It's probably more of the latter. Taylor McKee is an assistant professor of sports management at Brock University and actually wrote about this in The Conversation. You can find it online at theconversation.com. Leafs and Oilers in the NHL playoffs. Can I cheer on a team I usually hate? Taylor, good morning. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Are hockey fans eagerly willing to jump to the dark side, so to speak? 
<laughs> That's a great question. And, and the way you've, you've framed it is, is I think, a, an excellent way to start this discussion. I mean, one of the issues is this has been a 30-year situation here. And for many hockey fans, it's become a, a bit of an annual tradition this time of year is my allegiances or, or the team that I normally root for is gone. Do I just simply adopt one because I believe that somehow the, the Stanley Cup deserves to be back in Canada where it belongs. And then one of the things I explore is the fact that this really isn't a, a recent phenomenon. We have uh, newspapers going back to 1930 that demonstrate the fact that uh, after what they were described as a two-year sojourn in the United States, the Stanley Cup was back where it belonged. But since 1993, there seems to be this growing sense that the Stanley Cup has, has been taken from Canada and tucked away in America. And like many things in Canadian uh, popular culture, uh, we, we are missing our, our Canadianness because of this Americanization. Well, and the Americanization, too, goes beyond, you know, American teams winning the Cup. It is uh, the NHL head office is now based in New York. There's more American teams than Canadian teams. And uh, there, there's more and more not only American but European players coming in and uh, and playing the sport, which is great. It's it's added a lot of excitement and, and some great competitiveness, both in the NHL and internationally. But uh, I get the sense that Canadian fans might be thinking we're losing part of our game here. Absolutely. And that's sort of, that's an excellent way of framing this. I mean, this idea that the game itself is a reflection of Canadian identity. So at that point, you know, what, what do we be able, how can we call this sort of ours? And another thing that happens and has happened since 1993, and certainly in my experience is the team that does win the cup. And we tell ourselves as Canadians, many sports fans, okay, well, a Canadian team didn't win the cup, but then everybody turns into an amateur demographer and they're looking and they say, well, you know, there's actually 76% of the team is actually Canadian. He's born in Estevan, <laughs> Saskatchewan, and he's born in Elkhorn, Manitoba. And they, they start saying, well, you know, the, the cup really never left Canada because you see all the players themselves, they are Canadian. And the same sort of exercise occurs. And it, it does speak to a level of perhaps uh, insecurity when it comes to this cultural institution that that we must still be able to wait to find ways to tell ourselves that this thing is still ours even if it has resided south of the border for 30 years. We only got a minute to to discuss this further but is is the big fact here that this is the longest cup drought for a Canadian team. I mean, the last one was the Montreal Canadiens in 93. Never before in the history of the NHL have we waited this long for a Canadian team to win the cup. That's got to be a big factor. Certainly it is. And there's been, I mean, we have now entire generation that have grown up not not knowing any, uh, any situation in which a Canadian team had won a Stanley Cup. But certainly there is this sense that, you know, perhaps there is a, a some sort of Canadian victory if one Canadian team wins. But I would say this to, to many diehards, they would they would much, much, much rather their Canadian rivals not win the Stanley Cup. And that doesn't mean that they're anti-Canadian. This is a sense that, you know, the rivalries are what brought us to the sport in the first place. And it's okay to embrace those, even if your team has been eliminated. At the end of the day, as long as we're having fun watching and consuming the games and just being a fan of the sport, uh, I think that's okay. Taylor, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for your time today and enjoy the rest of the playoffs. Me. Uh, Taylor McKee is an assistant uh, professor of sports management at Brock University. Check out his article online at theconversation.com. The headline, Leafs and Oilers in the NHL playoffs. Can I cheer on a team I usually hate? We're all hoping that the Leafs and the Oilers spend a little more time in the playoffs, but we'll see what happens later on tonight. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900 CHML. Mel.com.
Hamilton.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.